It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Malcolm Gray. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. How are you, sir? I'm good, and thanks for the invite. Well, no, absolute uh, pleasure. And just to give people a bit of a concept about who is Malcolm Gray, I'm just going to run through some of your some of your resume. Chairman of BQ Design, Chairman of Gray and Johnson, Chairman of Cricket Australia, Cricket Victoria, Director of Benelong Fund Management, Deputy Chairman of Bank of Melbourne, President of the Real Estate Institute of Australia, Patron of Melbourne University Cricket Club. Director of the Diabetes Australia and Diabetes Australian Research Trust and the former El Presidente of the International Cricket Council. How are we looking there, Malcolm? Yeah, that's fine. Proves I obviously uh, had a short concentration span, so I had to do different things. Well, it's quite an extraordinary life that you've led and the roles that you've had have have you know even if you'd had one of those uh, in your whole career would be considered uh, incredibly successful in, in in my own humble opinion what of those was your favorite position and why no well, i don't think i can give you an answer there um i uh my main occupation has been real estate but as i say flippantly uh, maybe i had a short concentration span so i always uh, did other things was and was lucky enough to be able to do other things. Uh, I don't think uh, any of them I like more than others, although cricket was very long-term since my university days uh, and had an international flavour about it, which makes it more more interesting and more enjoyable. Um, but I was, I've just been a, a very l- lucky person. It seems to be a common thread with people that say they're very lucky, Malcolm, is that they create their own luck. Do you think that's the case with you? No. And I, and, and I, uh, I disagree that, that you create your own luck. Um, and in fact, and I'm, I can't remember his name, fast bowler for England that now writes for the Times and writes cricket. Uh, he wrote, wrote a book on this uh, about luck and he agrees with me that you don't create your own luck really it's so interesting i think you might be the first person i've ever spoken to that thinks that way well Uh, well, those that say they create their own luck is probably pandering to their own ego but anyway 
Well, what sort of let's let's take it back uh, a wee way, Malcolm. What sort of upbringing did you have, and where did you grow up? Firstly, I don't know. If you want to go back to that, um, yeah, born in Melbourne, um, and I went to Wesley Private School. Uh, I uh, then uh, went uh, after school. I went to Agricultural College, Dookie. Uh, which was great for me, coming from a private school background, uh, to go to a, the agricultural place where there were fellows from all walks of life and all places around Victoria and Australia, which opened me up uh, rather than being mother's little pet. Um, it broadened, broadened me. And also it taught me something great, and that was don't go into agriculture. Uh, that was the one thing it taught me um, because I would have been useless at it. So. Uh, it was a great three years um, in playing country cricket. Um, and uh, so I then did an economics degree at Melbourne University. After that, um, I did in those days the obligatory uh, tour or trip to England and Europe for 12 months or so, came back, and nobody really wanted to employ me. Um, so I finished up in the family firm, the family firm of estate agents which was started by my grandfather in 1914. So, yeah, there's, there's two or three things of luck in, in that. Um, and uh, I, was, I was lucky with my parents. My father, everybody says their father's terrific, but mine was, was terrific and gave me many opportunities. Um, yeah, lots and lots of opportunities. Was your father a, a mad cricketer as well? Well, not about mad. Um, he, uh, yeah, yeah, he he was in, involved. He was he was president of Northcote Cricket Club for years. With, you know, back in the Bill Warwick and Rodney Hogg years. From a cricketing career point of view, what are your own highlights in terms of how high you played? <laughs> no, I, I. I like. I love playing cricket, but I wasn't any good at it. Um, my story there is when I was president of the International Cricket Council, and I'd be in, say, India, and they'd say to me, "Oh, Mr. Gray, Mr. Gray, you're a very good cricketer, wonderful, wonderful cricketer." And I'd say, "Yes, I was captain of the Melbourne University fourth eleven, uh, so no, I certainly loved it, but wasn't any good at it. But I played with the university for, I don't know." 12, 14 years. Well, there's a lot of similarities between you and I, Malcolm, because uh, as we've both uh, come to come to be made aware, we're both captain the fourth 11 for quite some time there, and we both picked up premierships as well, which is equally exciting. And I'm curious to know, I, I have I have learned a lot about myself as an individual and, and picked up some really amazing attributes as the result of captaining a young side at, at Melbourne University. What are some of the things, the key takeaways that you picked up in your time as skipper of the fourth eleven? Well, I, um, I can hardly remember back that far. Uh, the I uh, know I I can't really remember. I without knowing it, I suppose it helped develop your leadership ability and skills. Um, just because it, you had to, uh, captain of any any sporting team. Uh, uh, should have some leadership ability, uh, otherwise uh, the success won't come. Um, and I, at the same time with the university, I 
was involved in administration. I was on the committee, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and then went on to VCA, and that that was the start of my um, uh, career in cricket administration. And then this career in in real estate. Most real estate agents that I know. Uh, extroverted in their personality types or very comfortable having a conversation. Uh, it's a it's a real knack being able to engage with many different types of personalities. Do you think that's one of the main reasons why you ended up uh, being able to go into these directors and presidents uh, of other much larger organisations with a large degree of confidence? Uh, yeah, it's... I'm not that sure I like talking about myself, but, um, yeah, I, I, I think I can talk to anybody, put it that way. Uh, in terms of a state agency, um, I always claim that I am unique in that you probably have never, you may have met many estate agents, but I'm the only humble one. Because estate agents aren't that humble, whereas I claim I'm the only humble one to which everybody, including my family, would, would say, what rubbish. <laughs> You're proud to accept the award for the most humble. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all of that. <laughs> and uh, from a real estate point of view, what is the most, your most proud achievement in all of those years? No, I don't think I had one. We were, we were successful and profitable. Um, we had we I had an unusual company and it was both commercial and industrial and residential. We had I had offices around the suburbs, but our commercial and industrial office uh, was in the city in Collins Street, um, and I enjoyed that life. Uh, for, for, well, I still 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 am going not not at the moment, but normally I would be going into the office five days a week in a Collins Street. Um, the in terms of, I don't think there's any standout achievement. Um, I was lucky to, to have a, a great raft of clients, which were very kind to me. Um, and uh, a lot of the transactions we did were, were quite fascinating. Um, and at the same time, uh, I was involved in the industry politics, being president of the REIV and then president of the national uh, body. That was good, uh, opening um, opening me up to uh, politics and dealing dealing with government. So, no, it was just the the general nature of uh, my industry. I liked and fortunately was lucky enough to survive in it. Well, I would just want to touch on this a little bit further, Malcolm. What are some of the 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 techniques or the the skill sets that you had to develop when you were dealing with, with with politicians in the leadership roles that you were in. Um, uh, in a way, if you go back to the characteristic of a person, and that is that they are a people person. Um, providing you've got that, and you've got half a brain um, in dealing dealing with the politics, is just uh, some hard work. But knowing your subject, doing the research, um, and uh, uh, just uh, sometimes having to pander to the politician's ego. Um, but I don't think dealing with the politicians is any different from dealing with the kids in the university fourth eleven. 
did you ever feel like you've compromised your core values and any of the the dealings that you ever had? Uh, no. Um, and I, in a way, maybe this helped to have some success. Uh, I am a great believer in honesty, absolutely, completely, and utterly. And in real estate, you won't get far if you're not honest um, because you'll get found out. Um, I can remember when I just started, uh, I was showing a doctor from Bendigo a, a new property uh, in Thornbury, and he asked me a question of something about the drainage, and I didn't know, uh, and uh, obviously I didn't have the confidence to tell him I didn't know, so I made it up. I went back to the office and found out I was wrong, so I had to go through the through the, the process of being humble and contacting him and saying, look, I got it wrong, it's not, it's not what I said at all. So I vowed after that I'll never make it up again because it just doesn't get you anywhere. Well, the, the role with the ICC, you are the man at the top of this very large pyramid and I suppose vulnerable to well, being exposed to uh, bribery and corruption. And I, I remember reading something about one of your prouder um, achievements in that role uh, in the ICC was the uh, great reduction in match fixing or the corruption that was happening. Were you ever directly exposed to targeted bribery or that type of thing? Unfortunately, people weren't bribing me. <laughs> I didn't get anything out of it. But yeah, no. Well, just on, all right, just on the on the International Cricket Council and the problem we had with corruption. In the 90s, there was talk of it. There was rumour, there was rumblings, and most of the time you, you didn't really believe it. And by you, by you, I mean directors of national bodies or the board members of the ICC really didn't believe it. At any rate, by the end of the 90s, it was evident that, oh, we do have corruption. Um, and um, first of all, when that happened, um, it was dealt with by the national bodies. So the Cricket Australia or West Indies Cricket Board or whoever would deal with the, the players that were suspected of being involved in corruption. And by corruption, it's not just match fixing. It was also uh, the, the, back to the trivial thing where whether after the team you'd wear a peak cap or you'd wear a, a, a floppy hat, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at that stage, I think the national cricket boards, uh, being having a nationalistic pride, uh, they rather dealt with some of the players fairly lightly. And I and people, players from every country were involved, including Australia. And players virtually from every nation, including Australia, were dealt with very lightly. Um, so it wasn't working. We were, the system wasn't working. We weren't, we weren't making advances of getting rid of it. Um, so then the ICC took the stand and said they will take over. At that stage, it was at that stage that I became president. That was in the year 2000. 
So we established, you know, and yeah, I was rather pleased about this. This is my, we established an anti-corruption unit um, headed by a fellow called Paul Condon, who was Sir Paul Condon. He later became Lord Condon, an Englishman, who previously had been uh, head of Scotland Yard. Wow. Uh, um, and he developed, he recruited some amazing international police people, um, who policemen who had had uh, police, senior police who had had international experience. Uh, one of the things we did then that I insisted on was we kept it separate from the ICC, even though it was an arm of the ICC. Uh, my fellow directors, they wanted it to be part of the ICC, be in the offices of the ICC at Lords, um, whereas I was insistent that the unit Condon would not report to the board. Uh, because he'd be infinite, not, not, they'd, they'd make sure he got influence. Um, and also I insisted that the officer of, of the anti-corruption unit be elsewhere. It was down in Westminster near Parliament uh, and, and away from, from Lords and from the office where uh, people from around the world, directors from around the world couldn't interfere. Uh, that was a bit of a hard battle to win, but we, we won that. Then at the same time, we... Um, uh, instigated a, a, I've forgotten what we call it, integrity commission, something like that, headed by a fellow called Hugh Griffiths. Now, he was a, he also was a Lord, Lord Griffiths, and he, he, uh, an older man, um, and he, uh, he was brilliant, uh, a real old English Lord. And he, in other words, he and his Commission were the were the judicial part of it. Condon was the policing part of it, and Condon uh, Hugh produced in the end. After Condon did all sorts of work, and we had all sorts of players and inquiries into into various players from around the world, um, because the corruption was shocking. Um, you had Hansi Kroenier in South Africa which was huge, and he finished up in an inquiry, which I attended. Um, another side thing, uh, we had trouble with Pakistan. Every country was involved, and we had trouble with Pakistan. I remember flying to Pakistan uh, to have a meeting with the president of Pakistan, Sharif, Pervers, Musharraf. I was singing about two things, trying to get Cricket started again between Pakistan and India because of the border troubles and also about corruption in that it was only he could do something about the problem we had with one or two Pakistan players in that uh, the selectors wouldn't, wouldn't be game enough to drop these players because they finish up the Pakistani people had take them on, burn their houses or do whatever, uh, the Pakistan board wouldn't be game enough to have the strength to, to do something about it. The only man that could do it was Musharraf, who was the patron of cricket in Pakistan. Um, anyway, I saw him and he, he was an excellent politician. He, he virtually had me for, for breakfast. Um, I didn't get that far. 
Uh, that was one I didn't. I I didn't win. Um, but um, Huey Griffiths, yeah, he uh, he did uh, teach me a couple of things. This is Lord Griffiths. He had been he had been president of the Marylebone Cricket Club, the MCC. He'd been pres president of the Royal and Ancient, in other words, golf. Um, he was had an MC military cross as when he was a boy of 19 in a tank in France, mowed out half the Germans and, and won a military cross, and then was a brilliant jurist, legal man, and was a, a, a British law lord. And I very much remember, in the, in the end, he produced a, a magnificent paper, very long, detailed paper on the problem, what had happened, this had happened, etc., etc. Uh, and... We had a large press conference at Lord's, he and I together, and we, just before and we, I had received this, this tomb, this paper, the board had dealt with it, um, and just before we started the press conference, he said, Malcolm, um, I think it's time to draw a line. And I said, Hugh, we can't do that. We've got to keep... He said, no, because all we'll do We'll keep digging the dirt, digging the dirt, digging the dirt, and it's not going to help. It's going to be extraordinarily damaging uh, to cricket. So I went along with it and we had the press conference set and we did draw a line under it and his decision, that decision was was a very correct one in that sometimes, not, it taught me that sometimes in life you've got to say, well, let's stop doing that, let's get on with it. Um, and he, taught, he, he also taught me something else just for the sake of a story. About that time, at the end of it, uh, because he'd been so good, and, uh, we needed to, to uh, and I'd been to his house for dinner, etc. So Merida, my wife and I, took he and his, his wife, who was a dame in her own right, out to dinner at a, 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 a top London restaurant, expensive top London restaurant. It was a Friday night. We got to the restaurant and it was packed, absolutely packed. The table was very close together and we went way over, over the back to our table. And then a bit later, uh, Hugh, Lord Griffiths and his wife came in and he came in and he was a pretty square fellow and he bullocked his way through the tables, across the tables, um, with his great big grey silver eyebrows going, flying, <laughs> and all of a sudden, bang! He knocks over an ice stand, the bottle stand, and the stand, the bottle, and ice just went over the whole of the, whole of the restaurant. And he didn't take us one step back. He just kept forging through, forging through, forging through, <laughs> plonked himself next to me. Malcolm, never admit and never apologise. <laughs> uh, a remarkable man. Yeah. Sounds like he was... So sorry, just to finish on the on the corruption. So yeah, I think we did a pretty good job because it was endemic, it was ingrained in, and we. I it took us, you know, a couple of years, but I think we got there. We, you will never get rid of corruption completely because there's always money will attract. There's always a bad egg in in the nest, etc. Uh, but I think from then on and today. Uh, with all of the controls that are within cricket, um, uh, I think we, it is now uh, well and truly under control. 
Yeah, well, I suppose before the internet was was uh, or internet gambling was a, was available, Malcolm, um, the spot the spot betting wouldn't have been anywhere near as traceable or or you know anywhere it wouldn't have existed anywhere. And then as soon as online betting came on and the ability to bet, you know, live betting that type of thing, the the stakes would have been a lot greater. Um, and I, I suppose some of the some of the information that I've heard just over the course of my life with regards to some of the reasons why people are uh, match fixing or is that they are threatened, particularly with some of the Pakistani players. I heard that they were threatened with their families' lives if they didn't commit the act of of match fixing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's certainly the case. And one of the problems we had was India, which is the huge economy and huge cricket economy, um, uh, gambling's illegal. So therefore the people involved in it, the bookmakers, are the bad, are bad eggs. Um, whereas if it was legal, it would, you could can regulate it where it wasn't regulated. And there were several murders involved at that time um, and just one story from that one fellow that finished up getting bumped uh, was a bookmaker um, and he he had got to the A team and we won't say which team uh, uh, to to fix a match that they were going to the, the, the certain team were going to lose it they were going to take a dive. Another bookmaker got to the other team and also fixed it for them to take a dive. So <laughs> both teams were, were fighting to lose. Well, um, the, the, the first bookie lost a lot of money and he didn't like it. So he then went after the, the, the other bookie for being, taking over his patch. The other bookie fled to Dubai. Uh, they then got onto him then, he then flew, went from there to South Africa and he got bumped in South Africa, he got murdered in South Africa. But that was one of several murders that were going on at the time. Another bit of a story I can tell you about about um, the nastiness or the perceived narcissism myself, We were there was a board meeting in London where we were going to get rid of uh, the United Arab Emirates, because a lot of corruption had gone on in Sharjah and Dubai, etc. And so we were heading to London to rub them out of cricket. And I thought to myself, or I think I spoke to the chief, we talked about, I said, well, I've never been to Dubai. I suppose I'd better go there. Um, I'd better go because otherwise they can level the accusation. What would he know? He's never even been here. So I, on the way to London, we flew to, my wife and I, Nerit and I, flew to Dubai. And uh, I can remember as the plane was coming down to land in Dubai, Nerit said, turned to me and said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? Uh, again, tell me. I said, I'm getting picked up at 8.30 at the hotel. I'm going across to Sharjah. Um, I'm seeing the officials there. Uh, about the corruption, about the uh, perceived conflicts of interest. I'm then doing a press conference, then lunch, and I'll be back. To which he says quite innocently, oh, what will I do if you don't come back? 
it was all very well for her to be sitting around the pool. We had, she was just worrying about me. Anyway, I did all that. And after this lunch they put on, I, I said, well, I'd better get go now. I'd better get back. And they said, oh, no, look, we on the way back, we want to show you a new ground. With I don't know, yeah. So off we went in, in a convoy. And after a few kilometres, all of a sudden, zoom, off the highway, into the sand, into the desert. And I thought, oh, my God, what's going to happen here? Anyway, we came to this beautiful little oasis of green, uh, a new ground, uh, literally in the sand, out in the desert. And we got out and I had a look at it and patted the curator on the head and said, what a marvellous job he's doing. And then I said, oh, look, I think I'd better go now. And they said, oh, we're staying here. We're, we're got, we want to have a meeting. And I thought, oh, God, they're going to get me on my own now. Um, and off the driver, my driver and I headed off across the sand and all of a sudden in the midst of this desert came a, a vehicle with sand flying everywhere straight at us. And I thought, God, this, this is it. They've got me out here and they're going to bump me. Um, the car screamed in front of me. We had to stop. Two, two Arabs jumped out at me, rushed up to me, and I thought, oh, I'm gone. But, but I'm a creature of habit. So what did I do? Wound the window down. Rather than dive under the, the dashboard, I went in and he said, Mr. Gray, Mr. Gray. I said, yes. He said, Oh, I am Abdul, da, 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 da. I'm the Secretary of the East, such and such, such and such, I want to meet you. And that was all it was. <laughs> they tracked me down the desert just to say hello. Did your, life, did your life flash before your eyes at any point? Yeah, all, all of that. But it's also, part of that is I'm basically a coward. So. <laughs> well, you be... In the end, we did, I think we did, get, oh, definitely we got on top of it. Well, I mean, isn't it just a great lesson in making sure that you get to the, the scene of the crime or you, you put yourself in the position of, you know, whatever, by getting into into UAE and, and seeing what it's like for yourself and having that extraordinary experience um, that, that has inadvertently changed the face of cricket, really. And we're, we're very blessed now to have, uh, you know, the IPL being able to play it over there um, as we speak. Yep. And they've, you know, they're developing as a cricketing nation. We've we've certainly attracted players in Australia that I'm directly aware of that have uh, represented the UAE in under nineteen teams. We had a, a player down at Melbourne University there at one point. Um, well, I suppose the irony of of it is that the ICC's office now, when I was president, our office was we had two offices, one in London at Lords and one in Monaco. Um, and they are two terrible places that I have to go to. Um, the uh, whereas now it is in Dubai the office, uh, and there's a magnificent, uh, a magnificent cricket stadium now in Dubai. After I'd finished as ICC president, my successor, San Mani, Pakistan, a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, he and I were directed. He was chairman, and I was on the board with Paul Condon, uh, uh, and that was to make sure that the corruption matter was okay, uh, and Clive Lloyd, he brought the cricket knowledge to the board of that new stadium. Um, and I can I remember there was an opening of it, a big opening, a big affair, and uh, the head, the president of cricket in uh, the UAE, 
who I'd got to know. He he was the man. And any rate, um, the uh, the Sheikh Muhammad got uh, helicoptered in, and, and this chap insisted I go with him to meet to greet to the Sheikh, uh, which I did. And he introduced me by saying, "This is the man Sheikh that I told you uh, he thought I was going to murder him." Anyway, so yeah, it's all good fun. Well, it sounds like you've met some extraordinary people in your life, Malcolm, and and, and I'm curious to know. In addition to the, the the people we've mentioned so far, are there any attributes that they've all that they all display, just as a matter of coincidence, or not so coincidental? Um, no. Uh, I suppose that people that are in powerful positions, either because of the nature of themselves or because of the position, do have a presence. That's the, that, that is a, a common thing, whether it's Mugabe in Zimbabwe or whoever. They certainly have, they have a presence. But that's probably brought about by a combination of their own self-esteem and happy with themselves because of what they've achieved uh, and because of the the extra gravitas that the position gives. So you've, you've met Robert Mugabe? Yeah, I think I can tell the story now. Yes, I have. Yeah, I, I went to Zimbabwe a couple of times and that's a long story. It's just a terrible, terrible story. What, what happened? That was previously Rhodesia and what happened? Um and well, just on that, at one stage things got very bad with uh, the white people getting thrown off their farms aggressively, getting killed, all sorts of things. And I, uh, it was a bigger deal in England than it was here because most of the, the, the white Zimbabweans were background ex-English. And it, it blew up to be quite an international uh, problem. And I can remember I'd get letters. People would, would be writing to me um, to get to see if I could help in any way, and particularly in regard to whether Zimbabwe played against England, etc. Um, and uh, on a Saturday in London. Uh, there used to be a protest marches outside the Zimbabwean embassy. And a couple of, yeah, if I happened to be in London on a Saturday, I'd usually go down there. I didn't, not in any official capacity. In fact, I didn't even say who I was. Uh, but I can always remember getting a letter from a 12-year-old um, who was imploring me to help. Um, and the letter, yeah, it made me, make anyone fall. Um, the kid was 12. They lived on a farm. Dad had been bumped off by the renegades trying to take over. And that had happened, um, I don't know, nine or 12 months previously. Well, then it happened again where they came, at the, came to, the, to the farm. He and his mother, his mother tried to lock themselves in the house when they, they, they were bursting in. Uh, and what they, these renegades did uh, was get the horses and this kid's pony 
uh, and stack uh, hay around it and then light it. Um, and that sort of thing was going on. Um, and at the same time, their economy was just going to hell and high water. Um, but yes, I met Zim, I met uh, uh, Mugabe. I forget the match. Anyway, there was a match in in Harare, in the capital of Zimbabwe, and he came to the cricket, so I got to sit and entertain. Um, and why I'm laughing is he brought along a nice little kid, seven or eight year old boy, and I thought, dumb me. And I thought, oh, how nice of them. The president of the country gets a kid to bring him along the cricket. Uh, it wasn't until later that I found out it was his own kid. Um, he had a rather a, uh, an active life and had various lots of children. But that day, he and I went out on the ground to, I don't know, meet the players or get on a microphone or something. And there was no way I was going to get shot that day because of the security. The two of us walked out amidst a ring of soldiers who literally were shoulder to shoulder, not near each other, their shoulders were touching. So if anybody fired, one of the soldiers had taken, not, not Mugabe or me. So he was an interesting man. This is incredible. Uh... I'm fascinated to know, you know, you talk about someone like Mugabe having a presence because of, of his own, I don't know whether you call it self-esteem or ego or is it a case of false bravado? What was your take on how Mugabe handled himself? Oh, I think all of what you said, but not false bravado, it would be true bravado. Um, he was in control. Um, he he was in control, so that I suppose for a, a, that sort of person, um, that gave him an enormous power and a feeling of whatever. Did you get an opportunity to talk about anything of any substance, or was it <laughs> fairly superficial? Yeah, I just you know, yeah, we'll change the subject, a minute. but yeah, dumb me again. I had. Before I w arrived in, in Zimbabwe, I'd done a bit of research and news, their newspapers and so forth, and uh, I'd had a look at their budget, the, the nation's budget, and I couldn't understand it. Um, so I said to Gabe, I said, hey, your budget, you've just come out with a budget, and I, I can't. Why, why is 53% of the budget going to the Defence Force? I can't understand why a country would need to spend so much on defence. And he, um, again, dumb me, well, I didn't know. I can't think of the neighbouring country. Namibia, is it? No, it's not Namibia. Anyway, the president there, and the, the, the country that adjoins Zimbabwe is very rich in minerals, huge mineral wealth. And, um, Zambia or is it? Uh... Yeah, Zambia. Um, and the president, the then president of Zambia, was Mugabe's mate, and uh, they were they were running the, the deal on the mining, where a lot of a lot of money finished up in Switzerland. And what the deal was was the Zambia Zambia band. He had the minerals, uh, 
whereas his mate Mugabe provided the security. In other words, the, the, the Zimbabwean army were over in Zambia, Zambia uh, protect, protecting the, the, the joint venture. Um, but, yeah, that shows how stupid and dumb I am. <laughs> did, you fear, did you fear for your life uh, at any point post-conversation with Mugabe at all for what you'd spoken um, about? No, no, not at all. Um, probably the only time I did worry about security was Kenya, Nairobi. That has a terribly, terribly tough tough town and yeah i was at one stage i had to go to speak at a function and, and nearer to my wife was coming late and she didn't turn up and yeah i had a few worries there but nowhere else like you know the problem with say pakistan um where as you as you would know well one of the sides got uh, got set upon in their bus etc this and the Cricket's not, not going on in Pakistan uh, because of security. Um, but you're, you're pretty secure. Yeah, you talk about um, how you feel. When I'd fly into Pakistan, um, I'd get off the plane on the tarmac and I wouldn't have to, and this sounds stupid and big noting, but I wouldn't have to go through customs out there. They'd put me in the, in the, uh, in the, in the car with a whole convoy of security um, and an army with guns everywhere. So I never felt threatened, uh, except the problem with it was they'd put me in the first car of the convoy and they'd put Nera in the second car and she didn't like being relegated to the, to the second car. But even there, yeah, I didn't. In fact, I, I think Pakistan is, a, is, is wonderful. We visited it several times, and both officially, but even then with the chap I mentioned before, Hassan Mani, uh, we did a, a trip um, up, up, way up into the, the mountains of the Himalayas uh, just for a few days' holiday. Now that, and there's another story. On one of my trips, I had to fly to a place called Gilgit, way up in the mountains, and you went out to the airport, I suppose, in Islamabad, I suspect, where we went from, and you wouldn't know whether you were going or not because it would depend on whether the plane could fly down from Gilgit through the mountains. So you'd go out there and wait to see if it was coming, and if it didn't, you'd have to go back the next day, etc. Anyway, we went out, and eventually, after sitting there for a few hours, they said, oh, no, we're going. So we got in the plane and they said, well, because of the cloud cover, etc., we can't fly over the Himalayas. We're going to have to dive in and around in, in amongst them. Oh, that was fine. And off we went. And then I had a bodyguard with me, and he came up to me in the plane and said, well, the pilots would like to meet you. I said, oh, yeah, fine. So up I went and stood behind the two pilots and had uh, chatted to them. And then by this time we were getting into Gilbert, and I said, oh, I better get back to my seat. Uh, and they said... Uh, Oh, no, no, stay. You know, you can stay here for the landing. And I'm standing up hanging on to the backs of the seat. The, the thing's rocking around as we dive in and out of bloody mountain passes. And I said, oh, I think I should go and sit down. Oh, no, no, you stay. You help us. We, it, it's a very difficult landing. We need you to help. You find the tarmac. 
So the plane's getting lower and lower, and they said, now, you look for the tarmac. You look, you look, you find the tarmac for us. And I said, I can't see anything. I kept saying, I can't see anything. By this, we're only, I don't know, a few feet, I suppose a few hundred feet off the ground, and we're getting lower and lower. There's no aerodrome, no tarmac anywhere. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, they go zip and do a hard left turn round a mountain, boom, and down. And then they just laugh. It was their, their joke for, for any any body of note on the plane to get them up there and uh, frighten the heck out of them. Well, I'd love to see a copy of your passport, Malcolm. It, you must have a few of them just jam-packed with arrival and departure stamps, not that they do that anymore. But do you have any any favourite countries that you've, that you've visited in the course of your many years? Uh, no, not because of... Uh, oh, I th- Italy, I love Italy. We love Italy. Um, and a good friend of ours is a fellow, Simone Gambino, who was president. He's now the patron, but he was president of Italian cricket for, for, for many years. So it was always good to go to Italy and catch up with uh, Simone. Gambino sounds a bit like an Italian... Uh, yes, no, no relation. No relation. <laughs> no relation to the boys. And you've got a, you've got a philanthropic side to you, Malcolm. I was um, really enjoying an old article uh, that involved the plight of former Melbourne University, well, current Melbourne University player, Farwad Ahmed and his plight coming into Australia as a as a uh, an asylum seeker, and then the whole plight around that. How was that experience for you? Uh, I wasn't a major player in that. Um, I did in in a small way, uh, yeah, help him uh, get his visa. yeah, because there was all sorts of problems with him getting there, but there were other people uh, that really did the, the, the uh, hard work on it. But just because of you being a captain of the fourth eleven, one of the, one of my fourth eleven players uh, from the sixties, he uh, uh, finished up a, a fellow called Tom Wodak, judge, and he finished up as a judge, uh, Judge Wodak. And after he retired as a, a judge. He took up a, a role in, and I, I don't know the, the, what, what the, the, the name of the role was, but whereby with these visa cases, after they'd been through the, the due process and through the courts, the last thing they can do, their last avenue, is to appeal to the minister, immigration minister. And uh, Tom took up the role of, he would review the whole case and he would advise the minister. And so we were able to uh, get some advice on how to deal with it uh, from Tommy. Yeah, well, it was a letter of recommendation, I think, was part of your major uh, contribution, Malcolm, from what I can tell. And uh, having being involved with the club at that time, it was it was something very special. And Farwad's just flown back or flying back from the Caribbean after picking up yet another T uh, Twenty uh, trophy seems like he's a bit of a magnet these days. Not bad for forty, which is uh, the same age as me. So good on you, Farwa. The the work you did with the Bank of Melbourne and your real estate background, the the 
I mean, everything you've done really ties into what's happening in the world at the moment, I think, Malcolm. What are your thoughts, given the current state of uh, where we are? We're both in Melbourne, uh, or in Victoria at least, uh, with coronavirus and property prices, because I know people will be like, can you just ask the guy what's going to happen to property prices in Melbourne? Any ideas? Oh, there'll certainly be a pause, if not a, a slight backward step. Um, but ultimately, and by ultimately, I don't mean in 40 years, I mean in a few years, things will be back to normal. The one thing I do believe about the economic effects of the virus and um, it will take time. Every other real down, whether it's the global financial crisis, the, the bust and boom of 1989-90, whatever, uh, it, it will take two, three, four, five years before we're completely back to normal. Is the, the current coronavirus, in terms of your life, the most profound thing that you've ever experienced? Yeah, I, yes, definitely, I would think. Um, to uh, think of us, all of us, living with the restrictions we're living with, uh, you honestly and generally could not have foreseen that in any way up to In Australia, you, you would have said, in Australia, that's not us. Well, some of the stuff that's really close to my heart, and I know is very close to yours, Malcolm, is this this focus on health. Uh, we've spoken uh, your son, who has uh, a type one diabetes from a very young age, uh, and it has it under control largely by the sounds of things at the moment. You've been you're involved as the the director of Diabetes Australia, and I was. Um, fortunate enough to have Dr. James Mukey on the show recently, current strain of the year and diabetes pioneer as well. We're on track to spend 100% of our GDP on type 2 diabetes in about 19 or 20 years are the estimates. How are you feeling about the current state of diabetes in this country and are you concerned? Yeah, definitely concerned in that um, it doesn't get the attention that the other two majors are do, that's cancer, uh, cancer and, and heart. But uh, if you go back to the figures, and I'm going to go, yeah, you should go back because I can't remember, it is something like 40 or 45% of people in hospital beds uh, in Australia uh, uh, are there because of diabetes. They're, they're actually there because of their heart or whatever, or the complication of diabetes, uh, and they're having an amputation of their leg or whatever, but it goes back to them. Uh, really, the problem starts with them having diabetes, and particular with type 2 as compared with type 1, um, the problem there, uh, a great contributing factor, uh, is obesity. And regrettably, we, Australians, Americans, everybody's getting bigger and bigger and fatter and fatter, and that that will just give you a propensity to, to finish up with type, type 2 diabetes. And it seems that the the mortality rates of the anyone with coronavirus, it's about a 50% rate of those all have coexisting um, or comorbidities, but it's 50% of them have type 2 diabetes. Yeah, well, the, the, the problem yeah. is, and you and I aren't, 
medical people, but uh, the, the problem is with diabetes, it uh, affects your immune system and you finish up with a lack of it. Now, our son, just to use our son as an example, um, Sam, uh, he's had diabetes since he was five, so he's had it for 45 or 44 years. Um, but he has a very low uh, immune system. If he walks into a room and somebody's got a cold at the other end of the room, he'll finish up five minutes later with the cold. And that's, that's just typical. Well, you'd be pleased to know, Malcolm, that the in the in the work that I've done now, I'm not a medical um, person at all, but I had the privilege of surrounding myself with people that are professors and doctors and that are experts in the space. Um, some names that I'm happy to to run by you as well. There's um, former Zim, another Zimbabwean uh, professor Tim Noakes, who's uh, known for his uh, his ultra running book, The Law of Running, yeah. amongst other things. Yeah. Um, professor Peter Bruckner, who you who you'd know. Yeah, I know Peter. Uh, and um, Dr. Gary Fetke, who is a surgeon down in Tasmania. I'm not sure if you've heard that name as well. Th- these these are some of quite a few now of these uh, doctors and medical professionals that are learning more and more about uh, metabolic disease and, and, di- and diabetes in any form. And there seems to be some groundbreaking work around the reversal or at least putting into remission of um Type 2 diabetes, certainly, through adopting low-carb diets, which is something I have personal experience with, but also being able to put into remission type 1 diabetes through through a low-carb protocol as well. Have you seen much of the research around that? Um, I can't speak on it, but, yes, I have have seen seen it. Um, Some of the work that the research are doing is absolutely remarkable, and... The top researchers, like some of the people you've mentioned, uh, they they get acknowledged, but by heck, there's a hell of a lot of other researchers, young people, who are absolutely brilliant, uh, working on, on some extraordinarily complicated matters, but they get virtually no recognition, and the remuneration they get is, is nothing. Um, Having having been involved with Diabetes Research Trust, Casey, you go into a, you go into a, a research lab. What amazes me, these young people literally are living on the smell of an oily rag. They don't they don't uh, catch the tram to to the research lab. They ride a bike because they can't afford a tram ticket. Uh, and yet they're they're very happy people as a cohort. They're doing brilliant work and doing what they want to do. Uh, which, in a way, is a lesson in life. Um, you can be happy without material material wealth. Yeah, well, I, I think you've noted... <laughs> a nice little lecture. Yeah. <laughs> no, one of the things that, that, have, that has become quite apparent, Malcolm, is that the the reason why the Western world, uh, in particular, you know, the, the US, where most other countries follow lead with regards to dietary guidelines, there has been... Some some proven cases of uh, influence with regards to big farmer and big industry shaping the, the dietary guidelines, uh, shaping the nutritional guidelines, which have had a profound impact on our uh, on human beings and and how fat and sick we are getting as, as a as a race. What are your thoughts on on that area, that very controversial area? Yeah, well. Uh... 
I understand your, your knowledge of it is far greater than mine and your practice and beliefs might be more controversial than mine. I'm pretty conservative in, in that regard. But um, from the little that I do know, um, everything is pointed in the right direction. Now, that doesn't mean to say everybody has got their own pet theory and it's right, but the fact that people are now hugely interested in diet is a wonderful thing, whereas previously they, weren't, you know, they just weren't interested. Um, and as uh, on a personal level, uh, that's one little silver lining from our son getting diabetes, well, if there can be, because diabetes is a terrible, 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 terrible condition um, where the, the person, you can't believe what a person with diabetes, particularly type 1 diabetes, has to go through. Every morsel that goes into their mouth, every bit, drop of liquid has to be thought through. What's that going to do to me for the next two hours? It's At any rate, I, I won't go. But the one... A little silver lining was, of course, our family uh, probably has eaten better over the over the last forty-five years than maybe we wouldn't, because yeah, Sam was always on a very strict diet and still is. Um, another silver lining, and on a personal nature, was I remember very well when he got diabetes and was five and was in the children's hospital. Uh, I went to visit him. Now, I smoked cigarettes since I was 16. By that, by that time, I was 35 or something, and I was addicted to the nicotine, absolutely addicted. I'd smoke a pack of, more than a pack of a day. Even if I had the cold or whatever, I'd still gasp away. And I never, I never tried to give them up because I had this view, rightly or wrongly, about myself that I could do anything I wanted to do in life. I, had, I could do it, I could work hard enough to do it. But the one thing I reckon I couldn't do was give up cigarettes. So I didn't want to try to give them up because I reckon I'd fail and I'd hate to, I'd hate to have failed. Anyway, I went to visit Sam in hospital, came out and got into my car in Royal Parade and the thought went in my brain, well, if he has to put up with having four injections stuck into him every day for the rest of his life, I can put up with not having a cigarette. And, I, and that was it. I never smoked again. It's really just an example of the psychological tie between a father and a son. But at any rate, it was a silver lining. Well, it, it's interesting that you bring it up, Melbourne, because you've, you've revealed an attribute that I sort of was hoping to get earlier in the chat. And uh, it sounds to me like you are an incredibly determined individual. And, and I think that seems to be a really powerful attribute in terms of success in life, um, an unwavering you know, desire to complete the task and the goal. Is that a pretty fair assessment of, of who Malcolm Gray is? Yeah, I suspect it is. Um, and one of the, the best speeches ever, I believe, was Winston Churchill Winston Churchill, they finally got him to go back to his old school, I think it was Eton, I think it was Eton, go back to his old school to speak. And the, the, the place was absolutely packed because the great man was coming to speak and it came time to him to speak and he slowly waddled up to the, to the stage and they were going to hear all these lengthy pearls. And he just stood there 
silent for a minute or two, and then he said, never give in, never give in, never give in, and then walked off the stage. Now, I reckon that's a, a great speech. Well, you'd be very pleased to know, Malcolm, that I'm related to Winston Churchill via marriage on my grandmother's side. Oh, my, my God, side. there is no variety. So uh, I, I'm, I don't know how true it is, but I'll take it. And I feel I, I really resonate when I hear Winston Churchill's name uh, and, I, and I get a shiver down my spine when you say things like that. So, um, <laughs> so thank you for doing that. Malcolm, I'm, uh, I'm very respectful of your time, uh, despite the, the, the twilight years of your career. I don't even know if you can call it your twilight years. You're still a very busy, active man. Um, but before we wrap this up, what are, what's on the horizon for, for Malcolm Gray for the, next, for the next year or two? Like, I was going to be flippant, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately... Yes, the twilight is, is fast approaching. If not, it's getting very dark. Uh, I'm still on uh, three or four, four, yeah, four different boards, which I enjoyed doing. Um, and, but I'm not working at the pace that I used to do. Um, so, uh, and I'm not much good at anything else. I don't make... Um, I don't make wooden toys for the orphanage for Christmas or, or yeah, and I don't garden, I don't play golf. Um, so, or bridge. Uh, so I've got to keep working to, to occupy myself. But I suppose I'll do that for a few more years and then I'll hopefully painlessly drop off the twig. I got a funny feeling that you're going to be around for a bit longer than that, Malcolm. I think with modern science and the developments in technology, I think uh, there's no reason why you couldn't give 150 a good nudge. But um, that's just my that's my personal opinion. Uh, this has been extraordinary and far more interesting than I ever hoped, uh, and a rare insight into the mind of uh, dictator Robert Mugabe, which our guests and our audience would not have expected. So I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of my heart, certainly. It's been an absolute thrill. Uh, Sorry. It doesn't sound like... sounds like there's a lot of other people wanting to get you on their podcast as well, Malcolm. So, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Malcolm Gray. Thanks. Very good. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training where I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.